This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Here at The Bunker, we try to give you, the listener, access to insights and ideas that might not be otherwise available. And with that in mind, I wanted to share with you some things I found out that most of you will consider unbelievable. So it turns out that the world is controlled by a race of reptilian shapeshifters who survive by drinking blood and live in underground caves. And these lizard people run the world and they use a variety of technologies and methods, including vaccines, 5G masks and religions to control the rest of us. You're probably wondering if you've clicked on the wrong podcast. I said I would tell you something unbelievable and I have. I bet none of you believe it, but a lot of people do. According to recent polls, half the population of Britain would not trust a vaccine for COVID. And another recent poll tells us that the majority of Republican voters in the US believe in the QAnon theory. And that, just if you're not aware, is the idea that satanic paedophiles control America and Donald Trump is fighting a heroic battle to stop them. So why is this stuff becoming so widespread? To help us to get our heads around these issues, I'm delighted to have Amal Khan with us today. Amil is a political communication specialist focusing on misinformation, disinformation, and other forms of online manipulation. He works with charities, development organizations, and governments to help them communicate effectively and counter harmful untruths. Amil, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much, Arthur. Amil, it's great to have you here. And I just wanted to uh, pick up, actually, on, on this last thing about the 5G masts and the sort of people's fears around that? Because I know you've been doing some work on that recently. Yes. So uh, we did some research. Um, the, the, the company I work for, Valent Projects, did some research for a campaign group called Clean Up the Internet. And the issue we were looking at was the spread of the 5G conspiracy theories. And that's when I really first, for the, for the first time, started looking at QAnon because there was so much of it and also so much of it in a UK perspective because it's one of those things that I think in, in British people tend to sort of look at America and go, oh, they do some crazy stuff. And QAnon was definitely in that in that sort of bucket of crazy American stuff for a while until I started looking at how much UK QAnon stuff we have. And it's quite significant. And so this is the, as I mentioned earlier, this is this idea that has been developing in America that there's a kind of deep state conspiracy of satanic paedophiles who are controlling America. And Donald Trump 
is sort of bravely fighting against them. But what you're telling us is that here in the UK, people have also started believing that. Yeah, and um, the the 5G conspiracy is really sort of bought, it was kind of like a singularity because of the coronavirus, because of lockdown, because of the implication around vaccines. This sort of brought together people who were in uh, anti-vaxxers, for example, so different audiences, different communities of people. And the QAnon element kind of became like an umbrella ideology that sort of adopted them and sort of bought bought these different um, strands of thinking together, which is something that we see generally in when we're looking at extremist type uh, political theories or or like sort of religious cults. It's the ability of one of them to kind of be almost like the the the, the meta narrative for the others and QAnon. Um, became that in the UK because of the pandemic. Amal, we've sort of jumped in at the deep end here with QAnon and 5G, but let's take a step back for a bit because there have always been conspiracy theories and, and you mentioned religion and, of course, some of the more kind of colourful beliefs that go with traditional religion could be seen to be a bit like conspiracy theories. But uh, if I'm right, you, you've been studying conspiracy theories right back from the time when you were a student. Is that right? Yes. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't a life plan or anything like that. But it kind of uh, went in that direction. So when I was at university many years ago, more than I'm uh, uh, going to admit to now, my dissertation, I did um, Arabic and Persian at university. So most people, uh, when it came to doing a dissertation, did like, water rights in the Bekaa Valley and something to do with the Palestine-Israel conflict and all that kind of stuff. And I thought Princess Diana had just died, so I am giving away the timing here. But I decided that actually what was really interesting, because I'd just been in Egypt before then, was the way the British public looked at it and the way the Egyptian public looked at it. So the British public, if anyone remembers, you know, everybody, it was mass sort of grief and it was all pretty mainstream stuff. Everyone Everyone was on sort of the same page, if you think back to that sort of golden era when, when we were on the same page about stuff. Generally, everyone thought it was an accident and it was sad and, it, and it, the conversation was around uh, the um, paparazzi and the rights of people to, to not have a camera pointed in their face all the time. In Egypt, on the other hand, it was the queen who had decided to kill her, sister, her daughter-in-law because she was marrying, she was going to marry a Muslim, and therefore the future king of England was going to have a half Muslim brother or sister, and of course this this couldn't be allowed to happen. And um, the narratives were all about you know the Crusades, and the, uh, it just fascinated me. And I would find books on the streets, you know, about this. And every uh, friend and uh, and colleague that I met talked to in Egypt. This was the main thing. And I thought there's this massive disparity between the narratives around this one event, same event in the UK and in Egypt. Both countries are intimately involved with the situation, but see it in com- through completely different lenses. And so I decided to do my dissertation on that. What were the reasons behind these kind of different dif- different views? So we went into, I remember I had a chapter on history and like uh, historical perspectives. But if I was going to do it now, I think... What we now, after you know the way things have gone in the last couple of decades, I would be focusing much more on issues around trust, uh, tr- uh, um, how the media works um, in Egypt at the time, uh, probably still now. 
the, the you had your official media, but nobody really trusted it because it's a government sort of government media, and everyone knows that it's there to kind of just repeat the government's line. So there's all these alternative sources of information and an underlying mistrust of the official outlets. And it's almost like, it's not almost, I think we have actually sort of mirrored that setup, that information setup. So in Western countries, in the UK and America particularly, we don't trust the official uh, information outlets anymore. We do kind of see them the way Egyptians uh, and people in other countries in that part of the world saw their official outlets. I find myself looking sort of like through a telescope at the past in places like Egypt and Syria and Middle East and Africa. And we are used to, in the UK, thinking that new developments in the world start with us, start in Western countries, and then they go off to third world countries. But what I've been seeing is, in my working life, my career, my experience, that stuff that I originally saw, uh, third world countries, is now coming to us. So it's just part of this new sort of um, information infrastructure that we have, and it's rapidly globalized. And the movements of innovation, good and bad, is also globalized. So it's not just going in one direction, west to east, it's also coming east to west. It's a brave new world, but it's not entirely new. You've It's a fascinating point that we've sort of imported from countries, we in the West have imported from countries this kind of conspiracy culture uh, from countries that in other terms, we probably don't think that we can learn much from them. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. I'm particularly thinking about Syria because I know that you worked there during the the recent civil war. And how did uh, conspiracies and and disinformation uh, shape that conflict? I remember two two key junctures in 2013. The Syrian regime used chemical weapons for the, the first time, and Russia wasn't as heavily involved in the conflict as it was later. But there was a disinformation operation, let's say, around trying to get the regime off the hook for it. And I think if if, uh, if you we think back to that time, you know, it really felt like uh, the the Americans were going to take military action, and there was a vote in Parliament here in the UK which the government lost, which kind of derailed it, and. That didn't happen. All of that didn't happen in 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 a vacuum. It happened because also the 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 Russians regime, the Russians were helping the regime on this, was putting out messaging, very clever messaging, around uh, straight to Western audiences. So from that time, we could see that there was a move by Russia, particularly in that time, to try and get what they want out of a situation by targeting the people who actually have the influence to make something happen. And what they'd realized was those people weren't uh, necessarily just decision makers, politicians, um, heads of state sitting in smoky rooms and, and wearing suits, but it was actually groups of people like, like, like audience, like real life people, but en masse. And those are the people that actually hold the, the, the power at the end of the day because because even heads of state kind of are looking to see what the these the sort of mobilized publics uh, want and are reacting to that what is it about the online world 
that makes it so fruitful for the for the spread of conspiracy theories? The big issue is how the algorithms work uh, on YouTube, fa- Facebook in particular. The algorithms are designed to keep you engaged as long as possible, and the business model is built around them. The more time you as an individual, any of us spend on YouTube watching videos in a in a YouTube spiral or in a in a Facebook spiral, the more the companies can charge advertisers. And the way that they figured out to, how to do that is is by meshing technology with psychology. So they know what um, kind of content pushes our buttons and keeps us watching the next one. And then and also some like really specific, uh, not even psychological things, it's just kind of user interface things like the way now YouTube will constantly push through another video. It'll just keep pushing videos at you. And somebody did an experiment on this um, a year or so ago. I think it was a former engineer at YouTube who's now speaking out against the way the algorithm works. He said, if you get a completely fresh browser, you take away all the data it has on you as a user, and you you don't set an account, you don't do anything, you don't give the, the, the browser any information about your habits or interests at all, and you go onto YouTube and you just just press one, just click on one of the videos that you see. YouTube's algorithm will automatically, I think he he said it up to about the sixth or seventh video, you will end up watching something that has uh, misogyny, um, violence, pr- provocation. That's not because YouTube has decided to purposefully promote that, but it's kind of a perfect storm where the uh, the the platforms know that certain types of content appeals to people and then people who are trying to uh get interest you know sort of political types ter- extremist organizations etc have figured that out as well and they should make sure that they game the algorithms essentially so the big big change in recent years, so if you're thinking about that change from 2013 to 2017, is is that the 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 content is designed, the, the the platforms are designed to push content at you, which is nasty, provocative, insightful, and all the rest of it. And we've got more and more people who who figured that out. If you've got, let's say, Nigel Farage, for example, Nigel Farage is amazing on social media. Um, he's the wrong age. He's He's the kind of background you think of people who are not going to be good at that stuff, but he has understood how you can get the, uh, the get the platforms to play by to to play by your rules and to promote your stuff. His content is made is is expertly made to do that, and the end result of it is that he can now he has if we're looking at the stuff about migrants, um, he that whole thing about on the news about waves of migrants coming over is uh has been started kicked off by nigel farage getting a cameraman getting on a dinghy and filming himself sort of like an intrepid journalist um talking about this stuff and he and he managed and he knew that he'd be able to grab uh attention on social media because he knows how social media works the extraordinary thing about that nigel farage case study but also the wider point you've made about how this algorithm sort of drags you into a tunnel that you a dark tunnel is i guess you know i certainly as a sort of layman but i'm sure a lot of the listeners feel this too we know that these tech firms are 
owned and run by sort of liberals in in you know San Francisco who probably aren't on board with the misogyny and the hate and the racism. So why why is it like this? Why why does the algorithm have to work in that way? Why couldn't the algorithm take you into progressively more liberal and inclusive content? Because progressive liberal um, content makers don't exist, honestly, I would say. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, because, I mean, that sounds a bit harsh, but they're not, they don't think in terms. So, my feeling about this, after banging my head on the wall, thinking about exactly the the point that you that you're raising, is that I think progressive, liberal, open-minded political actors, whatever um, people people are interested in this area, that we, we and I would include myself in this, we tend to think that the weight of our arguments, the rationality of our arguments, and the justice of our cause is automatically going to make the point and we just have to put that out there and it's fine people will understand and right thinking people will understand it and if people don't understand it um, they choose not to and they're bonkers and well we don't really need to worry about them because they're a lost cause whereas i think negative like nasty actors let's say they kind of know that they are um uh, their their cell is much harder and they're working much harder to get that edge and and i think they're probably I'm not, I, I don't think I'd be overstating the case to say that they're more comfortable with the manipulation and the misrepresentation, and they kind of have been doing that anyway for a long time. So this isn't a big jump for them. Whereas if you're talking to, let's say, the Green Party or somebody, just an example. So if anyone from the Green Party is listening, don't send me hate mail over it. But as an example, they will just say, let's let's tell the people you know let's tell everyone how bad the climate change situation is and where we're heading and just leave it at that and but social media doesn't work like that it doesn't it doesn't it that kind of even fear monger even even if you just go on full in 20 years the rainforest is going to going to burn down and we're not going to be able to breathe any oxygen anymore that that's not that's not even good enough but so i think there's a there's 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 a way of thinking about um, how you engage with content. I have seen people trying to do this. I have seen some really good work by the likes of Amnesty and other people who are like really thinking that it's not good enough just to be right, but it's all about how you engage the the psychologically the audiences um, and understand how the platforms work. But there's just not enough of that, I would say at the moment. That's that's for me. It's a it's an issue that we really really want to get involved in because we often go and sit in front of um, organizations and individuals and say you have to think about it in these terms and people will agree but there's often a, a, a sort of a, 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 a an institutional culture blockage well i guess if the years since 2016 have taught us anything is that people on the kind of liberal progressive side don't seem to be very good at getting their arguments across um, but perhaps not being tied down by the need to tell the truth makes it easier. But um, I, I guess sort of thinking about sort of conspiracy theory communities, I mean, the, the people promoting these theories and the people who buy these theories, uh, I mean, if, if we take the, for example, the, you know, the QAnon idea, um, what, how do these things start? Who's, in whose interests is it to believe that 
there's a paedophile Satanist ring running America. You know, what, why, did, why did someone start that and why has it become so popular? That's a great question. I think sometimes, I think it's a confluence of interests. And sometimes it's just, you can tell that some people just like to provoke others just to see how far they can get away with stuff, just that kind of impish mischievousness. Sometimes it's money. So if we think a little bit pre-QAnon, we were talking about the um, election in the United States, um, 2016, uh, there was a lot of reporting around ad farming or something like that. There was a lot of talk about teenagers in Macedonia who would set up web pages and just put all sorts of crazy stories on there that grabs pe- grab people's attention, and then they would monetize them through Google Ads. And a lot, and during the election, a lot of that stuff was about Trump and uh, and sort of various right wing themes. So they weren't, they didn't, they didn't care whether or not Don Trump won the election or not. But they realized that this material and this content attracts loads of Americans and. If you can get loads of Americans visiting a site, uh, you can make a lot of money out of it. So there was just a financial incentive to do that. QAnon in particular, it kind of feels to me with QAnon that somebody just went, you know what, stuff is so messed up these days that I reckon I could get people to believe in lizards and paedophiles and people won't even doubt me and, and I'll end up getting loads and loads of followers. Just watch me. And I think somebody just went off and said, yeah, you know, I can and did. And then it just sort of got a, a life of its own. So there is there is a whole bunch of different actors. And I think that is part of the thing that we sort of progressive on the progressive liberal side find difficult because the way it's the function of the modern world, it's more collaborative. It's more there's a lot of good stuff written about this. It's more temporary alliances, people over over various interests, some financial, some political, some ideological, and you can clearly see that people come together and then and then go their separate ways. And on the other side, on on the sort of liberal progressive side, we're still thinking, no, we've got this central argument, we've got these values, and we must carry the day through them. And if we don't carry the day, then we get um, annoyed with everybody about it. Is there something that is common to the people who go for the who who go for the conspiracies because you know one of the challenges is i think that uh i could perhaps refer back to my sort of opening uh preamble on this podcast it's very easy for for people like me to make light slightly of um of of these conspiracy theories because there isn't one tiny bit of me that believes any of it and yet it's clear that a lot of people do believe it profoundly, or do they? I mean, do they, do people sincerely believe it, or is it part of a weird game that we're all taking part in? These things work on the kernel of truth, so, and I think there's probably something that we could sympathise with um, that powers it, but then it sort of leads into crazy land. But probably um, the idea that that elites are not receptive, don't care about the rest of us. That's probably a common one that a lot of people share. That kind of stuff is is the portal into it. But then when it gets into the sort of more crazy areas, there's some there that that's when that's when there's a clear distinction around personality. So it's, there's there's a psychological driver as well when it comes to 
who like who gets attracted to this kind of theory i was doing some research on how the communications methodologies used by extremists and in the last few years there's been some really good work done by psychologists around the, the, the different types of personalities uh, who get involved in extremist groups of various types what they found was the, the most common characteristic was the lack of critical thought put it another way a propensity to think of the world in binary terms so something is good or it's bad solutions are spend money don't spend money a politician is a savior or a demagogue it's it's always one or the other and and with that kind of mindset also goes a propensity to see the whole world in the way that you see your own life so if you think well i would just go off and tell that person what i think or i would just go, for example violence as well no i would just force you know just somebody did that to me i just smack them and then and then and then sort of transpose that on international politics um, because at the end of the day they're a way of explaining the world around you based on the information that you have so it's the information that you have and the way you, you think about it is key uh if we go back to what i was looking at when i did my dissertation on egypt it made complete sense if you're an egyptian that somebody in the british establishment quote unquote want, would want to kill princess diana but when i i remember having a discussion when i when i would talk to people about this and i'd interview people and we'd do sort of focus group discussions about this one of the key things i found was it, it, the egyptian uh, my the, the egyptian interviewees i was talking to couldn't get their head around the fact that the queen wasn't in charge of the uk so that comes from their understanding of how politics works in their country, they had a president who was the supreme leader of everything, and there was no mistaking that. So when we got into talking about how the UK worked and uh, or how they saw the conspiracy theory, and they said, well, the Queen obviously wouldn't want a half-Muslim brother or sister to, to the next King of England. And um, I was like, well, what's the Queen got to do with it? Well, she's, you know, she's just sort of a... a uh, she's she's just a symbolic head of state she doesn't actually tell the military and and intelligence people and stuff like that what to do and they just couldn't get their head around that they were well, what's the point of the queen so well, she's just a good question we're all wondering yeah but it was interesting because when you get into these uh discussions and we do them in different uh scenarios when you dive deep enough you'll find that there, there there's a point of divergence between whatever you're thinking, whatever the person you know who, whose mindset you're trying to get around, which is based on just a, a, a different perspective, and it's not necessarily—I mean, it's wrong in the sense that you know we live here and know that the Queen doesn't tell people what to do, really, except for maybe in Buckingham Palace or whatever. But it, it just doesn't make sense if you're in if you're in Egypt living under Hosni Mubarak at the time, that why would somebody just be a symbolic head of state? I remember having a conversation with somebody about this where they said, hang on a minute, why don't you have a civil war? How comes the prime minister and the queen just don't, don't go to war because they're, they're both in charge of stuff. And yeah. I just, I just thought, yeah, well, I think she, maybe they just lost that you know, a <laughs> hundred years ago. And this is where we are, we are where we are. We tried that and it didn't work out well. Amal, I just want to thank you very much for sharing some of your experiences and insights. This conspiracy landscape is one that we've got to get used to. As you say, we can't, we can't return to a, a nostalgic past, but we, we probably need to understand better 
the ways in which people are affected by these ideas. And you've helped us do that today. So thank you very much for coming to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And to all the listeners, thank you too for listening. So remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. And the main panel podcast is on Wednesdays. You can get each edition early and without adverts, plus our glittering range of Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.